guys. Welcome back. How we all doing? All right, all right, there we go. A little delayed response, all right. Maybe we're still frozen, right? I mean, I think I saw today that we've had like a, almost an 80 degree swing in temperature in like five days. I mean, this is, it, what an insane week. I hope you guys are, we're okay, everybody's safe. Um, guys, we're gonna be in the book of Luke tonight. If you wanna go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter seven, that's where we're gonna be. As you get there, I wanna ask you a question. I wanna just throw it out there. It's probably not the question you thought you were gonna get tonight, but have you ever been disappointed? I mean, deeply disappointed. Like, I think that's probably a pretty universal experience that we go through life and, and something happens or we want something or we desire something or we're, we're hoping something happens and, and it doesn't happen. And it brings great and deep disappointment. Like I've had my fair share, I was just sharing with the team today, I think I've probably had, I mean I get disappointed often, but I mean like deep disappointment, it's probably happened like five or six times in my life. Where there was like something that was happened that changed the trajectory of my life or something that brought me to tears because of that occurrence or whatever. And we're not gonna get too dark and deep into Andy's past, but we're, I will share one disappointment with you. Um, I was about 24 years old, and uh, I did not live in Oklahoma, but God was in the process of getting me here, and I was in my first job, which you guys have heard me talk about, and uh, I loved it. I was getting to do ministry, and, and God was, uh, he was, but he was changing something in me, but he didn't let me know about that. I was already well down the road in terms of like what I think should be happening, what I think will happen, what I want to happen. I was already years down the road and, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, God moved me, physically moved me from one city to Oklahoma City. It was not a move that I would have ever planned. Um, I don't know if I've ever met anyone that said my dream in life is to live in Oklahoma City. Like I, just, like I, I love this city, don't get me wrong. Like once you're here, it's like, man, I love this place. I love raising my family here, I, love, I just love it. But when you're 24 and you're from the north and you went to school in Chicago and then you went to St. Louis and you get the phone call that, hey, we're gonna move you, what you're not hoping to hear is, hey, we're moving to Oklahoma City. And I was like, I, 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 God, I don't wanna do that. And I ended up here one of the reasons I didn't want to leave was I had a very steady girlfriend in St. Louis. And one that I thought, that I had planned, that I had started to prepare to marry. And a month after I moved here, I went back to go get permission and she broke up with me. Yeah. You, that is a small bit of how I felt. It was a left hook from deep right field. Like I did not see it coming. And so there I found myself, not, I mean, brokenhearted, yes. But really, if I look back, I was just deeply, deeply disappointed. Because I had built some things up. I had made my plans. And all of a sudden, those plans were no more. I wasn't living where I wanted to live. My life was now on a trajectory of singleness forever and ever and ever. And I was like, God, where are you? What is happening? And since then, there's been other seasons of my life where I've experienced disappointment, small and big. But here's the blessing of disappointment. 
The blessing of disappointment is that God reveals what I have put my faith and confidence in. Like that's what disappointment does for us. It pulls back the curtains of what we have practically put our faith in. Maybe it's our plans, maybe it's a job, maybe it's that future, maybe it's that relationship. Like, hey, I I was making my plans and my hope and my faith were in those plans moving forward at a pace that I dictated. And then all of a sudden, boom, disappointment. And I bring that up only to kind of get us onto this topic of faith. You've heard Jason and Aubin, man, their words in our song, it's about faith. We're talking about faith tonight. And I'll just, right off the top, like, guys, you are faithful people. Every, every single person you meet is a faithful person. Faithful to what? I don't know. But we are faithful people. And what I mean by that is, is we are, we trust all the time. Like, just getting here, you trusted your life with a mechanic and an engineer that you have never met in your life. You drove here in a vehicle that you did not see get made. You pressed the accelerator and the brake, trusting and having faith that they would stop the car or accelerate the car. You're currently now trusting people that made the seats you're sitting in. You are trusting them. You're putting your faith in the seat and in the maker of the seat. And so we are very faithful people. It's just a matter of what we're putting our faith in. And that's why I love and I cherish not in like a ooey gooey, I hope it happens again, but I look back fondly on my disappointments because it is through my disappointments that God brings me back to him. Because it's through my disappointments that 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 curtain is pulled back that shows me what I've actually put my faith in. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you're putting your faith in a better situation, right? You in just a different situation, a better one, different one. If, as, when that happens, everything will be better. Maybe it's you in a better job or a better relationship, or maybe it's you without the baggage of the past. We put our faith in a lot of things. Maybe it's you in, in your likability, like you put your faith in the fact that you are gifted with people, and when people like you, things are going well. But when someone doesn't like you, your faith crumbles. And I'm not talking about spiritual faith. I'm just talking about what you trust, what you put your confidence in. Because that's really what faith is, is putting our confidence in something. It's active confidence. And we put our confidence or our faith in dozens of things every day, hundreds of things every week, thousands of things every year. And the reality of it is when we talk with our friends and we hear about their disappointments, or you share with your friends or your family your disappointments, what we're doing is we're giving a testimony to the failure of our faith that we put in things that cannot deliver what you're hoping it will deliver. When we talk about our disappointments, when we describe the hurt we are experiencing, we're just giving a testimony to ourselves, hopefully, and to those around us that, hey, I put my faith and my confidence in something that has let me down. But there's good news, there's good news, and that is that there is a faith that will deliver every time and that will never change. 
and I think you know where I'm going with this. His names are on the screens. His name is Jesus. And so tonight, as we kind of walk through the book of Luke and we continue our series, we're gonna look and see what Jesus has to say about faith. Because he talks about faith all the time. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's talking about faith all the time. In fact, I just pulled out a couple. One is in Luke 7, verse 50. He's talking with this woman who is a sinful woman, and she comes to him, and everyone around is judging her and judging him for letting her approach him. And he says, you are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In Luke 8.25, he's out on the Sea of Galilee and there's a huge storm that comes up and uh, the disciples are freaking out. Like anxiety has gripped them. Every doubt of every choice they've ever made to be a fisherman has come to the forefront. And they go to Jesus and they wake him up. And they say, don't you care about us? We're about to die. The waves are crashing. The boat's out of control. And Jesus questions their faith. He says, where is your faith? And then in Luke 8, 48, there's a woman who's been bleeding for over a decade and she's desperate and she goes to him and she sneaks up and she touches his robe and she's healed. And he says to her daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. You see, Jesus, when he talks about faith, He's talking about big things. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about healing. He's talking about life and death moments. Where is your faith? Because at the end of the day, guys, we put our faith in a lot of things. Follow your disappointments and you will find where your confidence lies. Follow your disappointments, dissect them. Ask God, why am I so disappointed? Why am I so hurt? Why am I so, whatever the adjective is. It's because in some way, same, some way, shape, or form, we have formed some sort of faith around this thing or this person or this season or this job or this income or this whatever. And we form a faith that is never going to deliver what we hope it will deliver. And so tonight we're gonna get into Luke chapter seven. We're gonna get a magnifying glass out and we're gonna look at one specific story where Jesus talks about faith. And it's a story that has this magical word that we don't really use very often, but I love it. It's the word marvel. Because in Luke chapter seven, verses one through 10, he uses this word marvel in verse nine. I just want to define it for you. It means to wonder, to wonder at. Like it's that awe, oh my, oh. Like I experience this anytime I go to the mountains. I marvel at God's creation. When I went to the Grand Canyon and I couldn't see the other side, I marveled at what God has created. One of my favorite stories of watching my children marvel is when we took them to Universal Studios. And my daughter, who is a Harry Potter fanatic, when she walked around the corner and saw the Hogwarts Express or whatever it's called, I mean, she was marveled at what was standing before her. My son, my, my Charlie, my number four, he was in his big dinosaur phase at that time. Everything was Velociraptors, everything was T-Rexes, everything he did. He walked around like one, he would make noises in public like one. It was, it was a great season. 
and we get to Universal. We've seen Harry Potter, we go around the corner, and there are the gates to Jurassic Park. And I'm not kidding. This little kid full out sprints to the gates, people walking by, hundreds of people, and he stands in the middle of the gates right underneath and just stands like this <laughs> for what seemed like five minutes. And everybody was walking by laughing, oh, how cute. But dude, the dude was, he was marveled in wonder that he, I am at Jurassic Park. It's that feeling of, I can't believe this is happening to me. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. I marveled on my wedding day that some woman would agree to spend her life with me. I was marveled at that moment. But guys, this idea of marveling, we're gonna see what marvels Jesus. And any time that Jesus marvels, we have to stop and meditate and marinate for a minute. You've got the Son of God who says, this is marvelous. And in Luke chapter seven, he's talking about an individual's faith that Jesus marvels at. And this individual is a centurion. Before we get to the text, I just wanna explain what we're, where we're at here. And it's a Roman centurion is the main character of this story. And a Roman centurion was simply a professional soldier, all right? He, he was a big deal. He was a commander. He was a uh, actual fighting soldier. He was not a guy who just stood in the back and told her what to do. Like, he was in there. He was a man's man. And he, and he ran about 100, that's why they call them centurions, about 100 soldiers were under his command in the area of Capernaum. And this is the Roman Empire. And so what Rome did was they would send out these groups, these legions, and they would split up the legions into, into smaller groups, uh, into centuries. And the centurion would be over about 100 troops. And that, those 100 troops would be over a certain area of land and they would control it on behalf of Rome. And so as you can imagine, these guys were not the favorite character in town. They were a symbol of the oppression of Israel under the Roman rule, all right? That's who this centurion is. And so let's read. Verse one, chapter seven of Luke, chapter seven, here we go. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There's a, there's a, there's a centurion servant whom his master valued highly. He was sick and about to die. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, him to el he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the, uh, the one that built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume or consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority. With soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes, and I say to the other, come, and he comes, and I say to the servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, 
they found the servant well. So here's the question I wanna tackle tonight. What kind of faith makes Jesus marvel? What kind of faith would make Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God made flesh, marvel? I can't believe this is happening. What is Jesus' response to the faith of the centurion? So let's go back to verse three and let's reread and then we're gonna get to our first point. Verse three says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So my first point is this, the kind of faith that Jesus marveled at is a faith that is active and not passive. A faith that is active, not passive. It says he heard about Jesus and he sent him elders of the Jews. Right, so this centurion, like he was over this area. He lived there. He'd heard about Jesus. I don't know if he had seen him yet, but he had certainly heard the rumors of what Jesus had been doing all over that territory. And when he heard that Jesus was near, he said, go. Let's get busy. Go. He didn't just sit there. He didn't just sit in his living room and just say, man, I, I really hope Jesus shows up. I re, man, I really hope that, that that guy just happens to swing by. No, he, when he heard Jesus was near, his faith was activated. He said, all right, let's, let's move. And the direction they moved, he moved was to Jesus. In the midst of this pain of his, like they, we don't know exactly what was happening with his servant, but he was about to die. In the midst of this season of his life, his move, because of his faith, was to Jesus. It wasn't to soothsayers, it wasn't to magic, it was to Jesus. And I think what's amazing in this story is his faith wasn't just his faith. His active faith was on behalf of other people. It wasn't for him. It wasn't, hey, come do something for me. It was, hey, would you do something for them? And so his active faith produces something in his life. It produces fruit. When we follow Jesus and we step out and we become active in our faith, it produces something in us. And that activity of our faith working itself out actually then also produces something in somebody else. Watch what's happening here. You have two groups of people here. You have the centurion and his servants, Romans, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who are the picture of oppression in this area. And then you have the Jewish elders. These two groups of people were not friendly. These two groups of people did not typically hang out together or like each other or especially do favors for one another. But did you see what happened? It says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. So it wasn't a, hey, you go do this, or I'm going to kill you. You go do this. And then they said, they went and, and vouched for the guy. He's a good man. 
He loves our nation. In fact, he financed our entire synagogue building. And so not only was it an active faith, it was an active faith to bless those who shouldn't be a blessing. Great faith is not a private faith. Great faith is seen and felt by those around us, especially those who we do not mix with. For those we don't wanna be around. For those that are oppressing you, our faith, if we want it to marvel Jesus, should be active and active for the benefit of others. And so what does that mean? Like, I don't know if we have enemies. I don't know if you have an enemy, like, like a sworn enemy. I don't know if you have that. I don't think that's a thing. But maybe in your head you do. Maybe you treat them a certain way, but in your head, they're your enemy. In fact, they might be your arch enemy. Maybe it's that person at work that you're convinced is trying to torpedo your career at every turn. Maybe it's that person at work that tries to steal your, and get credit for what you're doing. Or maybe it's that person that you're convinced is trying to, to torpedo your relationship that you're in. Or maybe it's that family member that constantly belittles you and makes you feel about this big. Our faith as Christians needs to be active. And the centurion was actively loving his neighbor who he was not supposed to be getting along with. You see, great faith in Jesus is active faith that produces something in us as well as something in those around us. His enemies became his allies because of his faith. Guys, think about that for a second in the culture that we live in today. Think about that. What if our faith expressed itself in such a way that those that would call us their enemies would become our allies and they would advocate on our behalf because we have loved them and provided for them and cared for them so well. That is a faith that Jesus marvels at. Let's read verse six. And Jesus went with them. So they, they convinced him like, hey, this guy's worth it. You gotta come. And so Jesus was like, all right, let's go. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent another group of friends saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am, un, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. So what kind of faith makes Jesus marvel? A faith that is characterized by humility. First is one that produces, it's active and not passive. And then secondly, it's characterized by humility. When he sends his second group, he, I'm sure he gives them a script, right? He's the centurion. And they address him as Lord. All the centurion doing, is doing here is he is recognizing and treating Jesus appropriately. He's not, he's not kissing up. He's not making exorbitant claims about how awesome Jesus is because he doesn't deserve it. He's like, no, you are Lord. You do not need even, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. Peter said the same type of thing in Luke chapter five, verse eight. When he meets Jesus, he says, depart from me for I am a sinner, O Lord. You see, the centurion had every right as the centurion 
Roman representative of that area to command people to do things. But that's not how he came to Jesus. He came humbly saying, Lord, I don't, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great theologian, said it this way, two features of character blend in the centurion which do not often meet in such graceful harmony. He won the high opinion of others and yet held a low estimation of himself. Guys, think about that. Think about the, 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 the world we live in, how people respond to glory, how people respond to fame. It's not to lower themselves, it's to elevate themselves. Oh, you think I'm great? Well, I think I'm pretty great too. Let me show you, let me tell you, right? That's our human nature. And the centurion does the opposite. He lifts up the name of Jesus and he lowers his own name. Lord, but I am not worthy. The centurion was a remarkable man. Follow this. The elders said he was worthy. He said he was not worthy. They praised him for building the house of worship. He felt unworthy for Jesus to come into his house. They said he was deserving. He felt undeserving. You see, a strong faith and great humility are entirely compatible. The greater the faith will produce the greater humility. If it, there's, there should be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. What do we have to brag on? Like the only part of my salvation that I was responsible for was sinning. That's it. And so as we come together as we worship together, as we study God's word together, there is no bragging. There's only humility that God would love me and care for me and for you so much that he would send his only son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might be with him, that we might be in his house. That's good news of great joy. And so we see the product of the faith that Jesus marvels at is action. The character, the characterization is humility. It is a faith that is humble. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at the foundation of this faith. So verse eight, nine and 10. For I too am a man set under authority. With soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So what kind of faith makes Jesus marvel? A faith that is rooted under the authority of Jesus. That is the foundation. It's under the authority of Christ. And then on top of that is the characterization of humility. And that humility drives us to action, to love and care for our neighbor. That our enemies might become our allies by the way we love them. The centurion simply believed Jesus, that he had ultimate authority over all things and that he could heal from far distances. He doesn't even have to show up. 
Just say the word. I'm a, I'm a centurion. I have people under my command. I'm under the command of Caesar. If he says it, I do it. So if you say it, I know your power. It will happen. And that's what marveled Jesus. That this centurion who didn't know the history of the Jewish faith. He didn't know the prophecies. He didn't go to rabbi school. He didn't know any of the things. He, he was a Gentile. He was an outsider. But this outsider understood who Jesus was. This outsider understood the power of Jesus. He didn't argue with him. He didn't barter with him. He didn't make a deal with him. He just said, I know who you are. You are Lord, and if you say it, it will happen because you are the king of kings. The centurion's understanding of Jesus' spiritual authority made Jesus marvel. He got it. So let's talk a minute about authority. Because if we're honest, guys, we don't like authority. We don't. Even, even the goody two-shoes in the room, you don't like authority, Okay? We we could do a show of hands right now of who sped on the way here. You don't like authority. We don't like authority. Right? Not a big deal. We don't like authority. We don't like, don't tell me I can't go 40, okay? I'm in a rush. I need to go 60. Like, guys, we don't like authority. We don't like to be told what to do. In fact, that that idea of authority and submitting to authority, it just, it's, it's icky. We don't like it. It's in our DNA as humans, let alone Americans, that we have rights, right? Don't you tell me. That's, that's, how, that's how we come to the Bible. And we gotta work through that. Because our, the world, the, the idea of submitting to authority in our world, it's icky because we don't trust the people in authority. This is the difference. We don't trust them because they are humans and humans are flawed and sinful and broken. Like there's no doubt in my mind that some of you work with people who have bosses that you don't trust them because you don't think they believe in you or like you or have your best in mind. And so, of course, you don't want to submit to their authority. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about your boss. We're talking about Jesus. And Jesus is a totally different dude. Let me redefine authority for you. Because the centurion understood the authority of Jesus, the spiritual authority of Jesus. It's like, the, it's, it's like this centurion is writing Colossians chapter one before Paul ever thought about it. All right, let me read you Colossians chapter one. For he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things through Jesus, whether things on earth or things on heaven, making, and, and making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is who we submit to, not your boss. 
the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The one who made this planet called Mars that we celebrate that we landed on. He made it. He put it all in order. And so we submit to the authority of Jesus because he is the I am. We don't breathe without Jesus. Your heart doesn't pound without Jesus. Your brain doesn't function without Jesus. He holds all things together. And here's the even better news. Your boss may not like you. Or your best friend may have betrayed you. But Jesus loves you. Not in like a ooey gooey, he loves you. Let me read a couple scriptures just to make this point. Romans 8, 28, right? All things he works together for the good of those who love him. He's for your good. Aubin said it earlier, we didn't even plan this. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. And then the most famous of all, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, we don't trust people because we don't trust their motives. We can have our faith in Jesus because we know his motives. His motive is love and care for you, for your good. And so we can submit to the authority of Jesus, just like the centurion, whether it's in our dating life, whether it's in our professional life, whether it's in our family life, whether it's, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, in our, the temptation, our temptation life, like we can submit because we know he's good. Just like Aubin said earlier, come to me all who are weary and burdened is Jesus' invitation. Come to me and you will find rest. Not judgment, not shame, not condemnation. Romans chapter seven and eight talk about there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He loves you and he cares for you. And so you can trust him. You can put your confidence in Jesus. That is a faith that Jesus marvels at. Someone who recognizes the authority of Jesus and submits to it. Just like the centurion. Did you know there's one other place in scripture where Jesus is marveled? And did you know it also has to do with faith? It's in Mark chapter six, verse six. He had just come back to his hometown of Nazareth. And it says he couldn't do miracles there because of their unbelief. And he says Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Jesus marvels two times in scriptures that we know of at the faith of a centurion, an outsider who believed him and trusted him and came to him. The other time that Jesus was marveled was at the unbelief of the Jews in his hometown who knew him, who knew the predictions of the Old Testament that are pointing to the coming Messiah. Like they knew it, they grew up with it. They'd gone to church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, whatever. Like they were there. They memorized the Old Testament. They knew it and they didn't believe. And Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And I think for us, that is a warning for the Christian today. Because guys, we've had people come to the gathering that have come to church their whole life. But their faith is as, as dead as a doornail. 
They're going through the motions. We had a volunteer here. He volunteered with us for six months before he realized he was not a Christian. He's like, I've just, I've just done the church stuff, but I've never submitted my life to Jesus. He, he was in his mid-20s, been going to church his whole life. We've also had people walk through this door that had never come to church before and given their life to Christ that night. The centurion and the Jews. This is a warning that familiarity breeds unbelief. And what I mean by that is like, I grew up in church and I gotta focus my heart and my mind to make Christmas meaningful. I gotta focus my heart and my mind to make Easter meaningful because I've done it so many times. I've heard the songs, I've heard the scriptures, I've heard the stories like, okay, Christmas, Bethlehem, stars, shepherds, you know, okay. No, I gotta stop, I gotta, I gotta slow down and submit myself to Jesus and say, Jesus, show me with fresh eyes. Bring my faith alive that I don't just breed this unbelief because it's familiar to me. So if you're a Christian here tonight and you've grown up, I just told your story, look at the centurion and look at what marvels Jesus about his faith and then look at the Jews in his hometown. Like, dude, they saw Jesus grow up. They saw, like, he was the perfect kid. They saw it. He never mouthed off to Mary. Like, they saw him. They knew him. They knew the scriptures that were telling about him, and they did not believe. And Jesus marveled. You see, to have a great faith is to believe that the object of your faith is greater and better than. To have great faith that Jesus marvels at is to believe that the object, in this case, Jesus, is better and greater than the suffering. That Jesus is greater and better than the pleasure. He is greater and better than the comfort and the security. That is a faith that marvels Jesus. That when we choose what is better, when we have every reason not to. The centurion had every reason not to believe. He wasn't Jewish, he's in a foreign country, he's there for a job, but he knows Jesus. He acts on his faith. He humbles himself before Jesus because his faith is founded on the authority of Christ. What amazes me is that Jesus didn't marvel at the religiosity of the Pharisees. He didn't marvel at their church attendance. He didn't marvel at their scriptures they had memorized. He marveled at their unbelief. And on the other hand, he marveled not at the power of the Roman Empire. He marveled at the faith of the centurion that was humble and kind and generous and submitting. He marveled at faith when it was present in an unexpected place in the heart of a Roman centurion. And he marveled when it was absent in the heart where it should have been believed. So what do we do with this tonight? How do we take the centurion's faith that Jesus marveled at and apply it to our lives? Because guys, if we're gonna study God's word, we have to look at ourselves and say, God, what does this mean for me? 
So I want us to offer you four questions. And, and if you're new to the gathering, the reason we do these is just to give you something to chew on as you go home. Something to talk about at small group this week. Something to pray before you go to bed. Something to journal when you get up in the morning. Like just, let's just, let's just marinate, marinate on this a little bit. Let's pull out all the flavor that God might have for you tonight. So my first question is this. What are you putting your faith in? your confidence in. Look at your disappointments. Your disappointments will inform where your confidence lies. Bring those to the Lord. Confess it, repent from it, turn back to Jesus. Because guys, like we know, we know what it is. It's a job, it's a title, it's a relationship. I mean, like, that's what, those are the things we deal with. Number two, is your faith in Jesus producing anything in your life, specifically that benefits other people? Because there is no private faith. There isn't. We don't see it in scripture. We see a public faith that makes our enemies our allies because we treat them and we care for them and we provide for them in such a way that they vouch for you, even though they disagree with you? How does your faith inform your social media interactions? How does your faith inform the words that come out of your mouth? How does your faith uh, inform how you act with your family or that coworker, that Karen at your workplace? You got them. How does your faith inform that relationship? Thirdly, What would your life say about how you view Jesus? How would your life, if it could speak, talk about your view of Jesus? You see the centurion said, Lord, and brought and elevated Jesus. He said, I am not worthy. He must increase, I must decrease. What would your life say about your view of Jesus? And so maybe it's, again, a time to repent and say, man, I I am making much of myself. I am making my plans and my desires and my fears king overall. And it's time to quiet that down and elevate Jesus because he is a king who cares for you and loves you, has a plan for you. And number four, is your faith based on a surrendering to the authority of Jesus. Because if you're anything like me, for a long, long time, my faith was based on good behavior, good church attendance, and just being a good guy. But I really didn't need Jesus until I started habitually sinning. And that sin just crumbled that reputation that I thought I had. I knew I was a fraud. Like, have we ever actually submitted to the authority of Jesus in our thought life, in what we look at, in our dating life, in, our, in, the, in the words we say, the way we treat people. Are we submitted? Are we submitted to anything more than our urges? Is our faith founded on the authority of Jesus over our life? And we can do that because we know that Jesus is better and he is good and he wants what's best for you. 
And so we can submit it. Guys, Mary Ashton said something great earlier when we were running through this. She's like, submitting to Jesus is a privilege, not a burden. I was like, I'm, I'm using that, that's good. It is. When you find a savior that can actually do what he says he will do, and he will work all things out for your good, it's a privilege to submit to that kind of love. It's not false, it's not fake, it's not trying, Jesus ain't trying to rip you off. He's not your boss trying to micromanage your life for some, self, some sense of control. He is the I am, he is preeminent. He holds all things together. He, he has no insecurity about control. He just says, come. Are you burdened? Come. Are you weary? Come. Walk with me and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. We're gonna leave these on the screen. As we go into 120 seconds, let me pray for us as we, as we do that. Let's pray. God, thank you. Um, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank you for your loving kindness that invites us in just as we are. God, I pray that for those in this room who are professing Christians, God, I pray that you would, this would either, one, encourage them that they are walking with an active faith, loving and caring for the unlovable. Or if they're professing Christians, God, I pray this would be a challenge and a conviction to them that there needs to be a repentance, a turning back to you and putting our eyes on you and God, I pray for those in this room that may not be Christians. They've never actually made the decision to submit their life to Christ. They've gone to church maybe, or they've jumped through some hoops. God, I pray that tonight is the night that they would accept your invitation to come and that their confidence and their faith would be placed in your hands and that their life would start anew tonight. So Lord, as we ponder these things, I pray that you would do a work in us and that we would not leave here the same as we came. We praise things in your name. Amen.